0: Lord, as we now come to your word, we ask that you would use your word to accomplish your purposes in our lives. We pray that you would use it to confront us. We pray that you would use it to comfort us. We pray that you would use it to afflict us if necessary, and that you would use it to assure us. Oh, Father, we know that your word is sufficient. We know that your word is breathed out by the Holy Spirit and that it is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And oh God, we pray that you would train us now with your word for works of righteousness, that Christ may be glorified. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, please turn to the book of First Samuel, as we will be continuing our study in First Samuel today, looking at 1 Samuel chapter 15. Uh, verses 24 to 35. 1 Samuel chapter 15 verses 24 to 35. There is a passage in the Pilgrim's Progress, and I hope that that's a book that many of you have read, Uh, in which Christian, who is the main character in the book, is led into a room in which he encounters this man who is locked inside of an iron cage in the darkness. And he is absolutely miserable there. John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, writes this. He says, now the man... To look on seemed very sad. He sat with his eyes looking down to the ground, his hands folded together, and he sighed as if he would break his heart. Then said Christian, what means this? At which the interpreter bid him talk with the man. And then we read this in the dialogue that follows. Then said Christian to the man, what are you? The man answered, I am what I was not once. Christian says, what were you once? The man says, I was once a friar and flourishing professor, that is a professor of Christ, both in mine own eyes and also in the eyes of others I once was, as I thought, fair for the celestial city and had then even joy at the thoughts that I should get there. And Christian says, well, but what are you now? And the man says to him, I am now a man of despair and am shut up in this iron cage. I cannot get out. Oh, now I cannot. And Christian says, but how did you come into this condition? And the man said, I left off to watch and to be sober. I laid the reins upon the neck of my lusts. I sinned against the light of the word and the goodness of God. I have grieved the spirit and he is gone. I tempted the devil and he has come to me. I have provoked God to anger and he has left me. I have so hardened my heart that I cannot repent. Then said Christian to the interpreter, but is there no hope for such a man as this? ask him, said the interpreter. And so Christian said, is there no hope, but you must be kept in the iron cage of despair? To which the man said, no, none at all. The scriptures warn us of the reality of becoming, of reaching the point where a person is too far gone, as we might say. That is, of becoming so hardened by by sin in the heart that a person cannot be brought to repentance. There's a passage from the book of Hebrews that deals with this very real issue. The book of Hebrews has many warnings that are kind of scattered and and peppered throughout, uh, things that are worthy of our attention, things that are worthy of our consideration and our our self-examination, but the author of Hebrews was clearly concerned that his audience might fall away from the faith for one reason or another, which is something that has always happened. There have always been certain professors of the faith who have fallen away, even in the first century. And that was the concern of the author of Hebrews, that somebody who's hearing his, what I believe to be a sermon, I think Hebrews is a sermon, would eventually fall away. And so it's, it's got all these warnings scattered Throughout. And so recalling the way that the generation which participated in the exodus of the Old Testament was not allowed to enter into the promised land, but whose unbelief resulted in them actually dying in the wilderness before entering into the land, the author of Hebrews, uh, Hebrews relates this danger to the professing Christian of becoming so hardened in sin that a person cannot repent. And so he writes this in Hebrews chapter six, verses four to six. He says, for in the case of those who have, been, who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the son of God and put him to open shame. Now, as you're reading through that passage, you're, you're reading all these great things that this person has experienced, right? They've, they've tasted the heavenly gift. They've been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. You know what it doesn't say they did? It doesn't say they actually believed. So we should understand that this isn't talking about the possibility of losing one's salvation. That's what some people have argued. That's what I once believed uh, at a time in my life when I was actually certain that this passage was referring to people like I once was. No, this, is talking, this isn't talking about Christians. It's talking about what some have referred to as almost Christians. Almost Christians. The Exodus generation was an illustration of that. The Exodus generation had personally witnessed so many mercies and so many miracles of God. They had seen his power. They had benefited from his sovereign providence. They had benefited from his sovereign protection. God's glory was manifest before their very eyes in all these really incredible, awe-inspiring ways, and yet they did not believe. We saw the same thing happen in Jesus's ministry, didn't we? He'd perform a miracle and people wouldn't believe. He, he, tur- he, he turned a couple loaves of bread and some fish into enough to feed 20,000 people. And all they could think was, I'm coming back to him for more food tomorrow. Instead of, I believe in this guy. What's amazing to consider is, when we consider the, the, the Israelites in the wilderness, it, it's amazing to consider their response to all of this revelation of God's majestic power and glory and how it was really, you know, their response was really ultimately no different from the response of Pharaoh, who hardened his heart against God instead of humbly yielding himself to God, even though he had seen all these miracles, right? And God's response was to do what to Pharaoh? Pharaoh. God not only allowed Pharaoh to harden his heart against God, but God ultimately ended up giving Pharaoh the hardened heart, once and for all hardened heart that Pharaoh had desired against God all along. This is a real phenomenon that the Bible speaks of. And God has the sovereign right to harden the heart of those who have come close to him who have seen his majestic power, tasted his his majestic goodness, seen his glory. They've tasted the sweetness of the heavenly gift, and yet they persist in rebellious unbelief. This is what God did with Pharaoh. This is what God did with the Israelites, and this is what uh, he's going to do with King Saul as well. The Spirit of God had come upon Saul early in his kingship, equipping him and anointing him to be Israel's first king. Saul had personally witnessed the wisdom of God in the guidance that Samuel had given. He had personally seen God deliver Israel from her enemies in miraculous ways. He had tasted the sweet waters of God's grace and favor. And yet, tragically, what did Saul do? he continued to be rebellious and to refuse to believe, disobeying God as he pursued his own personal glory instead of God's glory. And as a result, the time would come when the door would be closed on King Saul, when uh, God would reject him and turn his face away from King Saul. In chapter 13 of 1 Samuel Samuel or Saul didn't trust God enough to uh, to deliver him and to deliver Israel and so Saul refused to wait for Samuel to arrive and present the peace sacrifices even though Samuel was the only one qualified to do so. So instead Saul did things his way. He took matters into his own hands. He defied God's instructions. That was in chapter 13. In chapter 14, Saul required more of God's people than the Lord himself did, thereby adding to God's word. And so then in the first half of chapter 15, uh, God instructed Saul to slay the Amalekites, you might remember. But Saul came up short, this time subtracting from God's word. And all of this is so tragic because the king of Israel was supposed to be a God-fearing, godly man who daily studied the scriptures and carried a copy of the scriptures with him. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 18 and 19 says of the king uh, that Israel would, would put over themselves, that God would appoint over them. It says this, it said, it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear Fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes. This is what was expected of King Saul. It's what was required of him. And Samuel actually reminded Saul of this expectation at his coronation. But Saul never did fear the Lord. And thus, when Saul failed to do all that the Lord had commanded him in judging the Amalekites, Samuel rebuked King Saul with the famous words, to obey is better than sacrifice. And he concluded his rebuke toward King Saul with these words. He said, in verse 23, he said, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And that brings us to the passage that we will be looking at today in which we're going to see how Saul reacts to this rebuke, uh, how he reacts to this rejection by God uh, as him being, of him being king. And the point of this passage is this. The point of this passage is that we must not presume upon God's grace. Rather, we must guard our hearts against being hardened in sin by regularly confessing and repenting of our sin. Now again, this is not to say that a person can lose their salvation. There are plenty of passages throughout Scripture that attest to the fact that somebody who is truly converted never can lose their salvation. Rather, what this passage and passages like this, like the passage in Hebrews, uh, what they're there for is to remind us that it's possible for somebody to make a profession of Christ without actually having true possession of Christ and the promises that we receive in him. Now that's a terrible place to be. That that might be the worst place a person can be. It's clearly a very confusing place to be because a person thinks that they're one thing, but really they're another thing. But this is a real phenomenon. This is a real place that people end up. We see it in this passage as King Saul responds to the rebuke that he has just received. So let's start with uh, chapter 15, verse 24 to 31. It says, Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe, and it tore So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Also, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Then he said, I have sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back following Saul And Saul worshiped the Lord. When we consider this exchange just at a surface level, just based on on what's said and what's just on the surface. We might be really tempted to think that Saul is being genuine here, that he's genuinely confessing his sin and genuinely repenting of his sin. And while I would agree that he is genuinely remorseful, uh, we should remember the Apostle Paul's words to the church in Corinth, which uh, which he wrote in Second Corinthians chapter seven verse ten, he said, "The sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death." So there are two types of sorrow. There's a sorrow that is according to the will of God, and then there is a sorrow that is of the world. The sorrow that is according to the will of God leads to true repentance, leads to salvation, leads to life, but the sorrow according to the world leads only to death. It's a false repentance. Saul clearly recognizes that he has indeed sinned. And he's right about that. He has sinned by falling short of what God required of him. He acknowledges it. He straightforwardly admits, therefore, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord. That's a good start. That's, that's great that he can admit those things. That statement alone, however is not an indication of true repentance. As we go through the exchange that that Saul and, and Samuel have here, what seems clear is that Samuel is never, at any point in this dialogue, he's never convinced that Saul's repentance is genuine. And there's no indication that God sees it to be genuine either. We have to remember that God looks at the heart of man. And so while the lips may say one thing, God is looking at the heart God sees through the facade. He sees through the lies. He sees through any act that we try to put on. And so for that reason, he knows better than we know ourselves. And that's why we must be concerned with the heart. It's it's why his judgment is ultimately all that matters. It's because it's possible for the lips to say one thing and for the heart to be contradicting the lips. And it's the heart that speaks the truth. God sees the heart. God looks at the heart. Now, if if we know that if Saul's confession and repentance were sincere, if his repentance was actually genuine here, I have to think we we know that he would be forgiven that God would show him mercy. We we know that uh, we know that because God promises that and God's promises are all certain. They are all sure. We can stand on all of God's promises. And here's one of God's promises. He says if we confess our sins, he that is God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the promise that we're given in 1 John chapter 1 verse 9. It's a promise. And that's not something, by the way, that's new. It's not something that is unique in the New Testament. It's the way that God has always dealt with sinners. And so we must see that because God does not forgive and restore Saul... It seems that Saul's repentance was not legitimate. A second reason that we can gather from the text for believing that Saul didn't genuinely repent here is the fact that no sooner does he confess that, uh, that he has sinned, in the same breath, he starts making excuses for his sin. Genuine confession and repentance don't do that. He says that he has sinned because I feared the people and listened to their voice, So I I had a reason that I did that, just so you know. I, I, I sinned, yeah, but there was a reason. There was a good reason behind it, is what he's saying. He's making excuses for his sin. That's not a sign of genuine repentance. How many of you know that you can't make excuses with God? And the reason is because he's looking at the heart. You can't make excuses with God. And don't ever forget that there are no excuses for sinning. A man will come up with all kinds of excuses for sinning, but they don't change the fact that he has chosen to sin. If you want to see what a genuine confession and genuine repentance of sin, according to the will of God, looks like, the most famous instance in the Bible is, uh, is, is probably Psalm 51, David's confession of sin after he sinned with Bathsheba. Now, David could have come up with all kinds of excuses for his sin, couldn't he? He could have said, "God, you put all this testosterone in my body, and my testosterone was just going crazy in that moment. I couldn't, I couldn't help myself. He could have said, "God, Bathsheba was just so, so beautiful. You made her so beautiful and so enticing. I couldn't resist. But he didn't make any excuses for his sin. He didn't say anything like that. Instead, what he said to God in verse four of Psalm 51 was, "You are justified." when you speak, and blameless when you judge. In other words, what David was saying there, he's acknowledging that he was fully deserving of God's holy wrath, and that God had no obligation to forgive him or show mercy. If God were to pour out his wrath on David right then, right there, God would have been perfectly just. That's what David is saying. God would have been perfectly just in giving David nothing but his holy wrath and judgment. But the point is, friends, the point is that while it may not be easy to confess that we have sinned and to acknowledge and admit that we are only worthy of God's wrath, the fact is that those who truly confess their sin must not make excuses and must be willing, must be able to humbly acknowledge their sin before God with no excuses and acknowledge the fact that all we deserve is God's wrath. Saul doesn't do that. He doesn't do that either. A third reason that we have for believing Saul's confession of sin, uh, believing that his confession of sin is, is insincere, is the fact that when Samuel approached him initially uh, in, the, in the previous passage, Saul tried to pretend that he had been faithful and obedient to what God had instructed, didn't he? Uh, It was only when Samuel pointed out the, the bleeding of the sheep and the lowing of the oxen in the background, which proved that Saul hadn't been obedient, that Saul finally makes this confession. And so with that said, the only reason that he confessed is because really Samuel had him in a place where he had no other choice. All he could do was confess. He only confessed because Samuel had declared the truth about the, the situation. Samuel had had seen that that Samuel or that Saul had lied and he had spoken the words that God had therefore rejected Saul as king. So Saul's confession is actually prompted by the fact that he was caught in a checkmate, so to speak. Friends, let that never be said of you. Instead, by God's grace, working in us, may our confession of sin always be prompted by inner conviction rather than by outward circumstances. Think of it this way. Think about a a husband who gets caught in a sin by his wife. Now, he may sincerely confess his sin and repent after he is caught, but it's better for him to confess his sins simply because he knows that confessing his sin to her is the right thing to do. Wouldn't you agree? A fourth reason we can be sure that Saul's confession is insincere, is seen in the fact that Saul is not exclusively concerned with the fact that he has offended God, that he has sinned against God. He says, I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words, talking to Samuel. Now compare that with what David says in Psalm 51, again verse 4, where he said to God, Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, we all know that David's sin was actually a heinous one that was against several people, a number of people. But it was, like all sin, ultimately and primarily against God. And God's judgment, God's feelings toward uh, his sin was all that David was concerned about. Now, David knew that he had sinned against other people. Of course he knew that. And he knew that he had done so terribly. But nothing mattered more than the fact that his sin was against the Lord in his mind. That's what really grieved his spirit. It didn't grieve Saul's. That brings us to a fifth reason. A fifth reason it's clear that Saul didn't truly confess and repent of his sin is seen in the fact that he pleads with Samuel, but we have nothing to indicate that he ever, ever went to God to plead with him. Once again, how unlike David's confession in Psalm 51 Know this, friends, know that when you sin, you need to go straight to God. Don't go to a priest, right? That's a totally different system of works and, uh, and faith and, all kind, and penance and things like that. That's Roman Catholicism for you. You have to go to the priest to confess your sin. The Bible never says that. You go straight to God with your sin, straight to God. Saul never does it he never does it. The sixth and final reason that we can be certain that his confession was not sincere is seen in the fact that Saul is only confessing his sin in what is ultimately just a last-ditch effort to avoid the consequences of his sin, that consequence being his rejection by God as the king of Israel. He shows absolutely no concern for having actually sinned. What he's concerned with is the fact that he is no longer going to be king, at least in God's eyes. So he's concerned first and foremost with the consequences of his sin. He's not showing any concern at all for his actual sin. This is one of the surest ways to distinguish between the sorrow which is according to the will of God that leads to repentance and the sorrow that is according to the world that leads to death. Sorrow that leads to death is primarily concerned with the consequences, whereas sorrow that leads to repentance is primarily concerned with the grievous nature of the sin that has led that person to the consequences. Now, I'm not saying that you need to just forget about the consequences for your sin and never take those things into consideration. No, consequences are actually a great means of moral restraint. Uh, you should consider the consequences of your actions before you sin. But what grieve, what, the question is, what, what gives you the most grief? The fact that you have sinned against a holy God or the fact that there are consequences for sinning against a holy God. I I hope you can see that there is just an enormous gap. There's an enormous difference between being sorry for the sin and being remorseful about the consequences, but not being sorry for the sin. There's a huge difference. What grieved Saul here is the fact that his disobedience toward God had consequences. He wasn't grieved over his disobedience. One commentator notes that this confession by Saul was, quote, not so much the result of inward conviction as it was an evidence of Saul's fear of losing the acclaim of the people. End quote. In other words, what Saul is most concerned about here is maintaining the status quo, maintaining his position as the king of Israel. He has all along, ever since he was coronated, he has been consumed with his own quest for glory. And here, what we're seeing is that he doesn't want to fall from glory. The irony, I hope you see it, the irony here is that he fell from glory a long time ago. But he has finally fallen from glory here. Now we should understand that, yeah, this is just not a true confession on Saul's part. It, not in the biblical sense in, in a legal sense, we might call this uh, a confession, right? You know, when a, when a criminal admits that they have done something wrong, they say, okay, yeah, you got me, I did it. And we call that a confession. Uh, but when the Bible promises forgiveness and cleansing for those who confess, like in 1 John chapter 1, verse nine, the Greek word for confess is actually two words. Uh, the first word is homo, which means same. The second word is logeo, which means word. So really what biblical confession confession is doing it isn't just saying okay you got me God I did it I admit that I that I've done it but it's saying to God God you have said that what I have done is sin that this is evil and because that's your assessment of my actions it's my assessment too I agree with you God that's what biblical confession means confession is essentially agreeing with God about the wickedness of sin And Saul doesn't seem to have any concern whatsoever about the fact that his sin has offended God about the wickedness of his sin. Richard Phillips notes in his commentary that, quote, true repentance is motivated not merely by a uh, a wish to escape the consequences of sin, but by conviction about the sin itself, end quote. And so with that said, true repentance doesn't try to soften the blow, it doesn't try to soften the judgments by making excuses about sin. And true repentance doesn't focus on sorrow over the consequences of sin. True repentance simply agrees with God's assessment of sin and pleads for mercy from God. God, be merciful to me, the sinner, as the tax collector said in Jesus' parable. Samuel. His response to Saul's false confession, uh, false repentance, uh, rather than accepting his confession and repentance, Samuel reiterates God's just judgment saying, you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And in what was almost certainly an emotionally charged moment, I think we can imagine, a moment of desperation in in Saul's mind, at least, Saul seizes, he grabs and he seizes uh, and tears the edge of Saul's garment as Samuel attempts to turn and walk away from Saul. What's interesting here is that there's actually an instruction that God gave to the Israelites that we find back in Numbers chapter 15 verses 38 to 40, and there we read this. It says, speak to the sons of Israel and tell them that they shall make for themselves tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations, and that they shall put on the tassel of each corner a cord of blue. It shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord, so as to do them and not follow after your own heart and your own eyes after which you played the harlot so that you may may remember to do all my commandments and be holy unto your God. And so as we consider that instruction right there to put this, this tassel at the edge of their garments, is it possible that this is the part of Samuel's robe that Saul has torn off? It would seem as though It's possible. I would say, actually, it's probably uh, the case. It's it's likely. And Samuel, having this corner torn away from his robe, he sees the irony of this aggressive move by Saul. He saw that it was actually kind of symbolic and even an appropriate uh, kind of real life allegory of what Saul had done. By tearing this portion of Samuel's robe, he had shown his disregard for God's commandments and for the importance of being holy unto unto Yahweh. And so as surely as Saul tore this, this part of Samuel's robe, the kingdom would now be torn away from Saul by God. And so Samuel turns to Saul and says, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today, and it has been given to your neighbor who is better than you. Who's that neighbor? That neighbor, of course, is David. Um, and, and we're going to be introduced to David in the, in the coming chapter. But uh, this marks a shift in the narrative right here, where there is now, from this point forward, uh, for a little bit, there's a void. Israel has no king. Again, at least not a king who is anointed and approved of by God. Uh, and that seat, uh, that void will be filled ultimately by David, who will become the main focus of the narrative from this point forward. Now we know that David would have his shares of sins, right? his share of sins. Uh, We we don't have any expectation that David would be perfect. We know that he wasn't. We know that he had plenty of personal flaws, of course, but he would not be like Saul, a man who was on a quest after his own glory. That was Saul. Instead, David would be a man after God's own heart. And that's how God himself would describe David. And the difference between those two objects of pursuit— Chasing after your own glory and chasing after God's glory. Those two things, the the difference between them is enormous. It's just, it's night and day. But this was God's sovereign decision that the kingdom would now be in Saul's neighbor's hand and God, we're reminded, doesn't change his mind. Praise the Lord for that. What a terrifying thing it would be if God did change his mind. Then which promises would you stand on? You'd take a guess, but you wouldn't know. God doesn't change his mind. Saul's response here really says it all. He he says, I have sinned. So again, he's acknowledging that, that he's guilty. I have sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. Even after all that we've seen, Saul is still consumed with this quest that he has for his own glory. I, I, I've sinned, but can you still honor me? What? What is he consumed with? He's consumed with himself. He's consumed with Saul. He can't bear the thought of losing his honor before the elders of Israel and before the people of Israel. And so he pleads with Samuel to go with him, to return with him, so that he may, in in his own words, worship the Lord, your God, your. Isn't it telling that Samuel has repeatedly referred to Yahweh as your God, instead of my God, or instead of our God, The tragedy here is that Saul is so concerned with his own glory that he has rejected the king of glory. He knows nothing of God's grace, and that doesn't even concern him. He knows nothing of God's forgiveness or restoration because he doesn't know God. He doesn't fear God, again, because he doesn't know God. How are these things possible? That's the question that that you might have when you consider all that he has seen. Think about all the patience that God has extended towards Saul. And Saul still doesn't know Yahweh. He still doesn't love or fear Yahweh. Oh, but he knows. He knows all about public relations. Saul does insisting that Samuel return with him. Make no mistake about it, this is 100% strictly a PR move. And Samuel agrees to return with Saul. Now that might seem like a really strange thing, that he would go back with Saul. It seems like a curious move, Uh, but it's certainly not because Samuel Uh, disagreed with God's just judgment. It's not because he relented of God's just judgment against Saul or questioned uh, God's just judgment against Saul. As we're going to see in the, uh, the rest of the passage, he's going to go with Saul in order to take care of the business that Saul left unfinished. Now, before we continue with the rest of the passage, I want you to consider the fact that Saul has been given so much opportunity to yield himself fully unto the Lord. And not only has he had time, and not only has he had opportunity, but he has been given every reason a man could possibly ask for to yield himself fully. Of course, the greatest reason being God has given him the throne of Israel. And he doesn't love God for that. He doesn't fear God for that. He's tasted of the heavenly gifts that God offers. He's had the Spirit of God come upon him as they went to battle against Israel's enemies. He's tasted the good word of God, and yet he has continued to stubbornly refuse to yield himself to God. He could be categorized the same way as King Agrippa in the New Testament, who said to Saul, or who said to Paul, the other Saul, Saul Saul turned to Paul. uh, He said to Paul in Acts chapter 26, verse 28, he said, in a short time, you will persuade me to be a Christian. In other words, I might believe in the future. I'm, I'm almost there, but I'm not there. That's a terrifying thing. A terrifying thing to say. King Agrippa and and Saul were both so consumed, so preoccupied with their own power, their own glory, their own honor that they put off yielding to the Lord. Do not ever let the same be said of you, friends. King Agrippa, and, and Saul, I guess, but, but King Agrippa was what George Whitfield would have referred to as an almost Christian. What's an almost Christian? George Whitfield writes this. He says, quote, an almost Christian, if we consider him in respect to his duty to God, is one that halts between two opinions, that wavers between Christ and the world, that would reconcile God and mammon, light and darkness, Christ and Belial. It is true he has an inclination to religion, but then he is very cautious how far uh, how he goes too far in it. His false heart is always crying out spare thyself and do no harm. He prays indeed that God's will may be done on heaven as it is in earth, but notwithstanding he is very partial in his obedience. End quote. That, in Whitfield's words, is an almost Christian. And you must see that this is the single worst position for any person to be in. But this is where King Agrippa was. And it's where Saul was. Don't let it be where you are. The man or woman of God, on the other hand, contrary to King Agrippa, is no fence sitter. A man of God understands that God is isn't satisfied with mostly obedient. But he understands that God demands that we commit ourselves to him fully. And Samuel, who knew that Saul was not the glory of Israel himself, but that Yahweh was, illustrates the kind of faith and obedience that God is worthy of as our chapter comes to a close. Let's look at verses 32 to 35. It says, Then Samuel said, Bring me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. And Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, but Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul, Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, for Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. God had instructed King Saul, when he was the rightful king, to completely destroy the Amalekites. And Saul had only mostly obeyed. He had only mostly done that, but he pulled up short of full obedience, sparing their king, probably because he thought that Agag would be useful to him uh, at some point down the road. Maybe Agag was a a mighty warrior. That was probably the case. He was probably a mighty warrior, and uh, maybe Saul therefore recruited him to fight for Israel against the Philistines, uh, whatever the case may be. Agag had been spared, and God had thereby been disobeyed. Now it seems that Samuel agreed to return with Saul so that Samuel could show Saul what kind of faith and obedience pleases God. And so Samuel summons Agag, the former king of the Amalekites, uh, to be brought before him, and we're told that Agag came to him cheerfully, which is a very interesting word to describe his demeanor in this situation. Agag assumes that the tempers uh, have cooled between him and, uh, and all the Israelites. So he says to Samuel, surely the, the bitterness of death is past. In other words, he, he's certain that, uh, that Samuel and, and the rest of the Israelites would feel completely vindicated for all the trouble that he and the Amalekites had caused them uh, by wiping out everybody except for the king. So he's essentially saying, hey, I'm not mad that, uh, that you've killed off all my people, and surely you can't still be mad about the, the Israelites that I've killed myself, can you? He's taking the moral high ground with... Samuel, essentially, with God. But that is not how things work with God. It's not uncommon when you're talking to people about their sin, it's not uncommon for people to say, yeah, you know, I, I've sinned, I, you know, I've lied, I've stolen, I've done this, I've done that. But, but that was all in the past. That was then, and, and this is now. You, you see people actually bringing this kind of argument up in Ray Comfort's evangelism videos all the time. And the thing is, there is no court of law uh, where you can go before a, a good, just judge uh, and, and say to him, yeah, you know, I, I, I did murder this whole family, uh, but that was in the past, and, and this is now, I've turned over a new leaf, so let's just let bygones be bygones, judge. And if that, judge, if that excuse doesn't work with a worldly judge, it's certainly not gonna work with God. Saul reminds Agag of his sin. He had killed the children, the men of many women, leaving them childless. Perhaps, if not probably, leaving them as widows, leaving many women as widows. And therefore, Samuel says in response to Agag, so shall your mother be childless among women. And with that, Samuel delivers the justice that Saul had failed Indeed, refused to deliver. Agag had been given plenty of time to repent before the Israelites came and went to war against them. And since he's been captured, he's had all this time to repent. But captured by the Israelites, you know, we have to imagine that he had seen the power of God displayed in the way that the Israelites destroyed the people on the battlefield. Agag, just like Saul, had every reason to repent and to believe in Yahweh, and yet he didn't. He chose unbelief, and so his judgment is just. Likewise, friends if you have not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ yourself, if you have not trusted in the Lord for your salvation, if you have not come to him to take advantage of the promises that he has made, promises of cleansing and forgiveness, if you've not come to him for those things, you must know that God has given you every opportunity and so much time and every reason to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and for your salvation. Samuel, we're told, won't see Saul again until the day of his death. And we're actually told explicitly why that is. It's because Samuel was so grieved over Saul's rejection by God and his rejection of God. If you haven't trusted in Jesus for your salvation, I want you to know that my heart grieves for you in the same way. You must not only know that the day is coming when God will cast the wicked into hell forever and that he'll be just in doing so, but you must also know that if you are content to continue rejecting God, rejecting Christ, or to be an almost Christian, if you're content with just sitting on that fence, you have no guarantee, you have no assurance that God will continue to hold the door open for you, so to speak as you have one foot in the world and one foot trying to get into God's kingdom. Choose this day whom you will serve. So as we consider, as we look back on this passage, did Saul fall away from God? Did Saul lose his salvation? No, because he never came to God. He never had salvation. He, he wanted to be close enough to God to receive the benefits and the blessings of being a man of God without actually trusting in God and being a man of God. Saul didn't fall away from salvation. He never had salvation. He fell away. What he fell away from was really just his position, his, his position of, of privilege. Saul is a clear picture of Of the man who is described, the person who is described in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 6. He had been enlightened, but what did he choose? He chose darkness. He had tasted of God's heavenly gift, but he'd spit it out. He hadn't taken possession of the heavenly gift. He had tasted the good word of God, but he didn't desire to obey it. The author of Hebrews tells us that it is impossible to renew such a person again to repentance. See we need to know that those who are truly saved can never be lost. That's a biblical truth that we we cling to that. We don't compromise with that. Once a person is saved, they will if they are truly saved, they will remain saved. None that the Father has given to Christ will be lost. We love that truth, but At the same time, we must guard ourselves against presuming upon God's grace and the danger of hardening our hearts against God and yielding to to sinful lusts and passions when we should be repenting. Christianity isn't a religion for people who won't sin, but it's also not a religion for people who won't repent and confess their sin. Friends, keep your hearts guarded. Be sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, he's stalking you. You're his prey. He's looking for an opportunity to make you fall from grace. So keep your heart softened toward God. How do you do that? By regularly confessing and repenting of your sin as soon as you're made aware of your sin. Samuel knew that God's judgment against Saul was just, and that it was final, that God wasn't going to change his mind, that Saul was once and for all lost now. But for you and me, we, we don't know when God is done with a person. Keep that in mind, Whenever, especially with evangelism, friends. We don't know when a person has, has reached this point that's being described in Hebrews chapter 6. We don't know when God's judgment against a person is finalized, when God will harden a person's heart once and for all the same way that he did with, uh, with Pharaoh, for example. On the surface, friends, you and I, we, we can't even distinguish any of the differences between somebody who is uh, an apostate of the faith, that is somebody who has completely once and for all walked away from the faith. We can't tell the difference between that and somebody who's just badly backslidden, And there is a huge difference between those two things. And because we can't tell the difference between those two things, we as Christians must continue to pray for and to reach out to people whose hearts are hardened. We must continue to reach out to them with the gospel, even as we grieve their rejection of God and as we grieve their love for sin. As Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 25 and 26, perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. We must continue to hold out that hope for others who are lost. We must not presume upon God's grace Scripture doesn't give us permission to just indulge in sin. Rather, we must guard our hearts against being hardened in sin by regularly confessing and repenting of our sin. Saul was a man who reached that point of being too far gone. Know this, friends. Sin provokes God's judgment. And rightfully so, because he's a just judge. But while sin provokes God's judgment, the confession and repentance of those who have believed on Christ for salvation provokes his mercy. If you've sinned, God is as willing to forgive you the millionth time you confess and repent as he was the first time. But know this, regular confession and true repentance are indeed Unquestionably, true characteristics, true marks of the person who has truly trusted in the Lord for salvation. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your word, for the way that it confronts us in our apathy for the way that it sometimes startles us in our state of lethargy and comfort. Oh God, we thank you for your word. It does accomplish what you desire to accomplish in us. And so we pray, O oh Lord, that we would be a people who are marked by true confession and true repentance. We thank you that in your grace, you have shown mercy to us. You've sent Christ to to provide what you require for our salvation. And we believe in him. By your grace, we believe in him. We believe in your promises. And so we ask, O Lord, that you would continue to grow us in Christ's likeness. And as we grow in Christ's likeness, we understand that that means growing in obedience To your word because Christ was perfectly obedient. But we do pray that you would grow us in Christ's likeness, that you would use us not for our glory, but for your glory and for the glory of Christ. May our message, may our evangelism be fruitful because you have used us, because you desire to reach into the darkness through us, through your people, to call sinners into your marvelous light. We pray, O oh Lord, for the salvation of family members and neighbors, uh, especially as we approach Thanksgiving dinner this week, Lord. We pray for grace to share the good news of the gospel. And we pray, Lord, for the salvation of, uh, of our family members who do not know you. Please use us in mighty ways to glorify Christ, and to serve you faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen.